Welcome to Berry Grounds. I'm Justin Brake. This year marks the 60th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous I Have a Dream speech. Standing before a quarter million people on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., the 34-year-old Baptist minister and black civil rights leader delivered one of the most celebrated speeches in American history. As the civil rights movement gained momentum, King and his supporters joined a coalition of groups on August 28, 1963, to demand civil and economic rights for black Americans. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. King's advocacy for nonviolent civil disobedience played a crucial role in the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, outlawing segregation in hotels, restaurants, movie theaters, and public spaces. But King was also a philosopher. I have a dream, maybe one of the greatest speeches of all time, but something King said just months prior holds absolutely vital lessons for us today. Our guest today has devoted his life to studying King's work as an activist and as a philosopher. He's going to tell us what the ideas contained in a letter King wrote from a jail cell in Alabama six decades ago can tell us about today's anti-racism efforts in Newfoundland and Labrador. Stay where you're too. The murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer in May of 2020 was a catalyst. Millions took to the streets in the biggest mobilization against anti-black racism since Martin Luther King's time. In St. John's, thousands marched to Confederation Building and called for an end to police brutality and anti-black racism. Among the speakers that day was Dr. Paul Benahene Ajay an Associate Professor of Social Work and Interim Associate Vice President of Indigenous Research at Memorial University. Dr. Ajay is from Ghana. He is Indigenous, a member of the Brutuo clan of the Ashanti people, and has applied both Martin Luther King Jr. and Mahatma Gandhi's philosophies of nonviolence to his own research in social work. Paul, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you very much, Justin. In April of 1963, Martin Luther King was jailed for leading nonviolent demonstrations against segregation in one of the most segregated cities in America, Birmingham, Alabama. From his jail cell, he penned the now-famous Letter from Birmingham Jail. One idea in particular from that letter became almost a motto for the civil rights movement. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly 
affects all indirectly. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Paul, what did Martin Luther King mean by this? I think that Martin Luther King in general sense, and and I think this speech was also connected to what he earlier said about that I have a dream, you know, the society that could be. And in that society, what he considered as the beloved community, we all have an individual and collective responsibility to challenge injustices when we witness it. What it means is that it calls for self-reflection and also self-complicity. In other words, how do we engage in a broader conversation around social injustices, knowing very well that we are both perpetrators and we can also be victims at the same time? And let me explain. You see, by virtue of our social location and multiplicity of our identity, there are areas in our life that we are privileged and there are areas in our life that we feel oppressed. As a black male, definitely racism continues to be a major issue for me. But I'm also aware that I am, you know, cisgender male, and therefore there's element of, you know, patriarchy and sexism in which I am also, a com- you know, uh, you know I, I am a complice, or, you know, I have a complicity in that. I am in a heterosexual relationship, so when it comes to issues around homophobia, I am also complicit to that. So how do I engage in that broad conversation, not only focusing on areas that I feel oppressed, but also my willingness to engage in a broader conversation, often in areas that I am also the perpetrator. Oftentimes, when it comes to conversation around social justice, we often tend to speak more about areas where we feel we are the victims. So it's easier to hear Paul talking a lot about anti-black racism in our society, to talk about anti-indigenous racism. But to what extent do I add my voice when, you know, trans community, when gays and lesbian community, when, you know, uh, women group are raising questions around sexism, homophobia in our society. And that was what Martin Luther King was alluding to, that we do not need to participate in the fight against injustices only because we feel oppressed. Even when we are the perpetrator, when we are privileged by oppressing, we have an individual and collective responsibility to also speak about that. And in fact, by virtue of who we are and by the fact that we are privileged by certain issues around social injustices, we have the platform and we have a bigger audience. And this is when we speak up, when we are really privileged in those areas, that really indicates our willingness and honest conversation to engage in the process of creating that beloved society, that dream, I have a dream society that Martin Luther King was alluding to. So what it simply means is that we cannot leave the work around social, the fight against injustices in society to only few people, knowing very well that we are all accomplished to that. And this, you know, con- connected to that, I think Martin Luther King also alluded that at the end, we will remember the silence of our friends and not even the, the virtualic words of our enemy. And he meant really well because sometimes the most painful part of the fight against injustices are people that you thought have your back 
and are your friends and are your colleagues keep quiet when they actually witness you being, you know, uh, oppressed by others. Those are moments where you feel betrayed and you feel let down. King and Gandhi weren't only challenging racism and oppression. They were also working towards a better society, one that didn't yet exist. But that, they said, requires deep introspection and love. Ideas that might sound lofty or even cliche to some. But not to King or Gandhi or to you, Paul. Can you explain why a willingness to delve deep into our own imaginations, as you've put it, and an ability to work from a place of love are key to fighting racism? I think both King and Gandhi were not even just talking about any type of love because love, you know, there are different types of love. They were speaking specifically about what they call the agape love, the unconditional love. Now, agape love is not necessarily sentimental feelings or, you know, expression of affectionate, you know, feelings for others. But it is about coming from a place where you do not decide who deserve it and who doesn't deserve it. They were talking about how do we approach the work around justice, knowing very well that in, a, in an injustice society, both the perpetrator and the, the one who is receiving the injustice are both victims. In fact, Franks Fanon have a way of saying that violence dehumanizes both the oppressor and the victims. So to create that beloved society, how do we engage the fight around social justice, not simply as an individual issue, but to understand it from the place of an institutional issues? So that our goal is to create an element of healing reconciliation. And this for me is embedded in the very culture of indigenous communities. You see, just since our society and the way we understand justice, we've been conditioned to understand justice from a place of, you know, punishing the, the, the perpetrator. And in fact, oftentimes we even leave the victims, you know, uh, untouched. On, on, on in other words, let's, let me give you an example. Let's say that I, I become a victim of, you know, uh, uh, somebody takes my item, you know, steal from my stuff, you know, steal my stuff, and, and the person is arrested. What the legal system is simply interested is punishing the one who stole the items. The notion of retrieving the items and returning it to me, oftentimes is not something that we spend so much time and energy. So even though, the, the perpetrator have been punished. The victims are always left alone. And we carry this same mindset in the fight around social justice. And, the, and with understanding that the perpetrator needs to lose something. But from an indigenous point of view, and, and, and this is where it is connected to what both Martin Luther King and Gandhi were trying to help us to understand about how do we create that beloved community where our focus is not to you know, is to separate a bad behavior from a person. In other words, they, both Gandhi and King think that it's very, it's very much possible to separate evil deeds from the evildoer, knowing very well that the evildoer is also a victim of an institutional practice. So how then do we proceed 
And other researchers and philosophers have talked about the fact that justice cannot exist without love because when we take love out of justice, it stops remaining justice. It becomes something else. In fact, it becomes a matter of fact, revenge and retaliation. And unless we understand social justice work as something to create a revenge or a retaliation, then we miss the point that Gandhi and King were trying to say that how do we bring love into the work that we are doing? Now, this love doesn't mean that the, 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 the perpetrator is being left alone, but an understanding that how do we bring the perpetrator from a place of, you know, under, seeing disentrenchment, you know, the, the notion that they feel like we live in a society of a zero-sum game. The only thing that they can win something is for others to lose. And come to an understanding that it is possible for us to create a society where there is a win-win. And that when one side is affected, each side is affected. In fact, you know, Gandhi has a way of putting it that we can judge a country's, you know, civilization based on how they treated the most vulnerable. Because they were talking about that society where we see each other as uh, we are each other's keeper. Paul, when we talk about what it means to build the Newfoundland and Labrador that could be, we often think of the province as a settler society that must come to terms with its historical and ongoing violence against Indigenous peoples. But Newfoundland and Labrador are also home to a gr growing number of new Canadians, just as our ancestors once immigrated to these lands. You believe that part of what's holding us back from accepting change is our attachment to tradition. That tradition stands in the way of our ability to imagine what our future could be. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, I mean, in many ways, you know, from as somebody who works with African indigeneity, I recognize the importance of tradition. I recognize the importance of honoring history. I recognize the importance of honoring culture. But I think it becomes dangerous when in our attempt to honor tradition, we allow it to imprison us, especially from the ability of imagining the society that could be. You see, Newfoundland as a province keeps changing, and it has never often been a homogeneous society. You know, and, and here I speak specifically in relation to race. Newfoundland historically has always been that there are always presence of indigenous people. And then uh, we have European settlers who, who join. But along the line, we, also are, we are also seeing things that are changing, where gradually we are having many immigrants who are also joining the province. The question is, what does that mean to build an inclusive society? What do we need to think around? And part of building an inclusive society is sometimes there is a tendency, a misunderstanding that we think of inclusive society as adding what is missing. But sometimes the problem is not what we are adding. It is what already there that could be the problem. And when we continue to insist that we want to continue to have the Newfoundland, as we have often imagined that it could be, the Newfoundland, you know, that already exists, the Newfoundland that was, you know, dominated by people of European ancestry. It, 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 you know, it prevents us to also think about the fact that 
our province is changing and that we need to create part of building an inclusive society is to challenge how historical we have been doing certain things and the need for us to reimagine about how do we build the, the, the collective province that includes everybody. And that inclusion requires that we challenge issues around power. We challenge issues around institutional and social arrangement. We challenge how certain things have been normalized. So, I mean, I've often heard comments like, well, when you come to Newfoundland, we Newfoundland are different. And I hear that often. In fact, any time you bring conversation about how we could create the Newfoundland that could be, we are reminded about how different and how unique we are. And I've always asked this central question. And, and Justin, I asked this question from a place of humility because I'm happy to hear an answer. At what point do I become part of Newfoundland? And how long do indigenous people need to live here to be considered as part of Newfoundland? And so when we say that we are different, when we say that we are unique, that when we say that we have a history that we need to honor, we are also interested to know at what point do we consider that our province is gradually changing and that whatever we continue to honor must also include others who are joining us. This is how we build the new Flanders that could be. Let's return to King's letter from Birmingham jail, because there's a passage in there that strikes at the heart of what it means to be a white person and a potential ally at yet another critical juncture in the fight against racism. First, I must, must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time, and who constantly advises a Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. In other words, good intentions and moderate support aren't enough. Either join the fight for equality, as if the injustice toward one is an injustice to all, or be clear about your opposition to racial equality, but don't hinder progress by criticizing or ignoring those fighting for their lives. Paul, many white people took the streets at the height of the Black Lives Matter movement and many of them have since gone about their lives, perhaps with a sense that they've been good allies for having shown up then. What does real and meaningful allyship today look like to you? This is, for me, the center of the issue. 
We are a society that has proven over the years that we have a short attention span when it comes to the fight against racism. That there is this notion that we can, you know, when an issue come up, you know, our general, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, reaction is to express, you know, uh, disgust at what has happened. I mean, you know, the, the, the killing of, you know, Mr. Floyd is not the first time that as a society we have, you know, reacted to something that is obscene. We can go back to the killing of M.A. Till. We started the civil rights movement and bring some white, you know, progressive allies to join the conversation. Uh, we can talk about, you know, Roy King, who was also beaten. So we have that. But the problem has always been that we fail to understand that we are heavily, you know, complicit to these issues. You see, the challenge for many moderate white folks is the idea, the tendency for them to see themselves as, I am a good person. I care about people. I don't discriminate against anybody. I accept everyone. So it become anti-racist work become people think that being a non-racist is enough to be anti-racist. In other words, if I'm not going out openly discriminating against everybody, then I am not complicit. But the point is that racism has only one, two outcomes. To produce benefit for white people and to issue punishment for non-whites. So even if you are not directly participating in racism, you are benefiting from it. And for me, that has always been the, the, the tendency for white allies to begin to understand racism from a place that they are privileged by institutional arrangement. They are privileged by our institutions and by the history of racism in this society. And therefore, by engaging in that conversation, they also need to examine how they are also benefiting from that. Until we do that, we are not going anywhere. And part of being a white, you know, a white ally is also to listen and not undermine or trivialize or tend to you know, rationalize the stories of pain that people are saying, in particular when racialized people are talking about their experience of racism. How many times have we been told by our white friends that I don't think that is what they meant it? Or maybe you don't you think you are reading too much into it? Because, you know, there is an element, uh, it, it, and, and, and uh, there is a point at which I think, which Martin Luther King said in terms of the, the, the idea that liberal whites are trying to determine the nature and the content in which, in which you know, the content within which they expect, you know, victims of oppression to react. The late South African civil rights movement, uh, uh, Steve Bantu, who says that nobody wants to be told how to cry after they have been kicked. And in our society, there's always a white person who wants to dictate the terms and conditions by which victims of racism have to cry. Either we are deemed as crying too much or we are becoming emotional. But it is experience of harm. And those are the moments that you feel let down, you feel betrayed. I want you to hear my cry.
So I think that the starting point of, you know, being a strong white ally is to listen to the stories of pain that people are saying. But more importantly, by virtue of being white, certain doors have been opened for you. And part of your work is to use that privilege that you have to open the door wider for other people to have access. That people who previously would not be hired in certain organizations. When we come back, in the wake of the George Floyd protests against police brutality, the government of Newfoundland and Labrador put four cabinet ministers in charge of, in the government's own words, eradicating racism in the province. Almost two years later, what have they accomplished? That's the late, great gospel singer Mahalia Jackson singing Precious Lord, Take My Hand at the funeral of Martin Luther King Jr., who was assassinated on April 4th, 1968, in Memphis, Tennessee. Black Lives Matter brought anti-racism into the mainstream. Governments in Canada and elsewhere adopted anti-racist policies or legislation. In the summer of 2021, the government in Newfoundland and Labrador struck a ministerial committee on anti-racism that purports to, quote, work towards a diverse, inclusive, and equitable society that is void of racism and discrimination. Last year, following months of public consultations by the committee, the Anti-Racism Coalition of Newfoundland and Labrador criticized the committee and its process, saying that with no final report, no recommendations, and no binding commitments, including funding, there's no accountability. And with no accountability, no reason to believe the bold action necessary to address racism in the province will be taken. So far, the government has offered optional intercultural competency training for core provincial government employees, and they're also working with Indigenous groups to develop cultural sensitivity training for elected officials and public servants. The Department of Education, for its part, is working on an anti-racism webpage for teachers, and it's planning to get more books on anti-racism into school libraries. I wanted to hear directly from Jerry Byrne, the Minister of Immigration, Population Growth and Skills, about the committee's work. But I was told he's not available. Instead, a spokesperson said that the government, quote, continues to take action to oppose all forms of racism, acknowledging that consultations, public engagement, and the resulting anti-racism work are ongoing. They said, quote, this work has no end point until racism is eradicated, end quote. I'm told the committee's preparing a what we are hearing document for public release and that they'll have more to say at that time. Paul, what do you make of the Anti-Racism Committee? Is a group of four cabinet ministers a viable means of eradicating racism in the province? I I want to start by saying that, you know, I appreciate the institutional commitment, you know, to eradicate, you know, racism in our society. 
the very concept itself is, is a wonderful idea. But perhaps the follow-up question that I want to ask is, how does eradicating racism in our society looks like? And, and the reason I'm asking is because oftentimes when we talk about racism, we only look at it from one angle. And Justin, maybe let me break it down in a way that we will understand. Let's say that you have a house and in your home, you decided to rent out the basement for, you know, for tenants. You rented it out. Then the tenants came in and initially they were in the basement. And after they keep increasing, you know, the family keep expanding. And then they came to you and said that, you know what, Justin, even though you rented the basement to us, we feel our number have increased. And so we want you to leave the main apartment and stay in one room so that we can include the main apartment to us, to, you know, you know, to help us. And then at a certain point, they came back to you and said that we want you to leave the the, the one main room that you are in and just, you know, stay in the compound because, you know, we've built a tent for you. And then at a certain point, they say that even, you know, living on the compound is a problem. We want you to go to the, you know, the, the drive, you know, uh, just go outside the street. And they keep pushing you to the point where you completely display, you were completely displaced. But not only are you being removed, you are being told that you can't actually speak English in that house. You are not even allowed to wear European clothing. You, you can't do anything, but you have to, in order for you to live in part of Newfoundland with them, you have to subject yourself to their rules and regulation. This is how this society was built. So the question is, when we want to eradicate racism, how would that look like? My point is that the process of fighting racism itself required that we put whiteness under serious scrutiny because we are where we are because of whiteness and how our society is embedded in a white supremacist logic. Every Every institutional practices, every social arrangement that we currently have in our province is embedded in whiteness. In other words, when we say something is embedded in whiteness, we are saying that it is informed by European values, European worldview, European system of thought, which we you know people genuinely believe that is superior to what other cultures have. And that is the essence when we talk about white supremacists. People think that when we talk about white supremacy, it's just about, you know, the work of KKK, the burning of, you know, uh, uh, you know houses and others. No. What the KKK and the white nationalists are doing is just using violence to enforce white supremacist logic. But the actual white supremacist idea is embedded in what we do every day. The very notion that we people of European ancestry believe that their culture their value system, their worldview, their religion is superior. And therefore, before other humanity are recognized, they need to live by those standards. So I am asking this question again. 
how does eradicating anti-racism in our society will look like? And the question that we need to follow up, are white population willing to engage in a serious conversation about what it means to live as white? Because oftentimes, you know, anti-racism work seems to focus on the harm that are being done. But we are not asking the benefits that are being accrued from that. And so, with, 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 you know, I, I think this is the point where, you know, others who have raised concern about our approach to anti-racism work have legitimacy that we, we don't, at, at this stage, it doesn't appear that we are scrutinizing whiteness and how it's embedded. There are people who genuinely believe that they can create anti-racism society and still maintain whiteness as the center. The two cannot happen. One thing that strikes me about the Ministerial Committee on Anti-Racism is that, from what I've seen, it hasn't actually defined anti-racism. Many anti-racism educators have been clear that anti-racism and not being racist are not the same thing. Um, Ibram X. Kendi, author of the best-selling 2019 book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, defines anti-racism as a, quote, powerful collection of anti-racist policies that lead to racial equity and are substantiated by anti-racist ideas, end quote. He says policy reform is anti-racism, so long as the policies help reduce racism. Change policies and laws first, and the way people think and feel will follow. Paul, you pointed out that King and Gandhi both believed change requires introspection, and that the work that brings about change must come from a place of love. Are these views about how to end racism at odds? I, I think so, but I, I also believe that there could be a middle ground where we can balance what King and Gandhi is saying and what Ibrahim is also suggesting. I mean, first of all, let's look at policy and laws. There is no doubt that policies and laws are rooted, you know, when policies and laws are rooted in racist ideas, it triggers, you know, it filters out in our everyday behavior. But the laws and the policy itself are created by, you know, uh, a particular ideology, a particular, you know, value system. That is why in many cases, when people look at our policies, in particular, when I say people, when many white people look at our present policies, is they find it very difficult to detect racist, you know, thought embedded in it because some of these policies, in many ways, resonate with European values, European, you know, knowledge system, Europeans' worldview. So, in many cases, they do not, in any way, see those policies are very harmful. That's why people can simply say that I'm just. I'm just doing my job because I'm following the policies. I'm following what the laws is saying. So from that context, Ibrahim was right in terms of talking about the fact that to change out, to bring in institutional changes, we need to examine the policies. We need to examine the law. But Gandhi and King is also raising a very vital point and say that how do we go to the root cause? Changing policy and laws are not enough because another policies and laws will come. And so far as the source of where the policies and laws are coming are rooted in a particular ideology, and that is an ideology of 
that deem European values, European knowledge system and worldview as superior to others, we will continue to reproducing policies and laws that will favor members of European you know, background. Uh, uh, one simple example is even issues around child welfare. Why is it that notwithstanding all the conversation that we've had, right from, you know, residential school, uh, 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 city schools, you know, uh, the millennial schools, indigenous children continue to be taken away by the child welfare system. Even when we continue to claim that we are actually reforming the child welfare system, we still continue to remove indigenous children in an unfair way. The question is, what is it about indigenous children that somehow our child welfare system has not been able to have an answer? Because the way we raise our children, which is rooted in the child welfare policies and laws, are based on how members of European society understand what parenting really looks like. And in many ways, excluded how indigenous people look at the, the way they raise their children differently. So the point is that when we want to create a society that are looking at in a broader sense of eradicating policy, then we also need to look at our value system and worldview. There is nothing wrong with European values. There is nothing wrong with European knowledge system. There is nothing wrong with European culture. But it is everything wrong when people want me to live my life as European when actually I am not. And so this is where I feel, you know, bridging the gap of what Martin Luther King and Gandhi are raising and what Ibrahim is also raising can be the answer. So it is not either or. It should be end and with. We examine policies. We examine our laws that are enforcing racism. And we also, as individuals, do an introspection look at our, how we come to understand ourselves in relation to others and how we make sure that that beloved society that we talk about, the beloved community, we begin to also unpack how we have, we have been conditioned to think that what is familiar with us as members of European society is superior to others. For me, that is the fundamental issues. And that is what I mean when we say that we cannot do anti-racism work without a proper scrutiny of whiteness. Because oftentimes, this is where people get things lost. The fact that you haven't called somebody by using a racial slur or openly discriminating against somebody, but still believing that the way you live your life as members of European values, uh, as members of European society, is the most superior way and everybody should live by that. That, for me, is a white supremacist idea. And it's not different from what members of white nationalists and KKK are doing. The only probably difference is that one is using force, while the others is using pen and paper to enforce that. The group People for Education just released a new progress report on anti-racism policies across Canada. The report notes Newfoundland and Labrador's Ministerial Committee on Anti-Racism, but it also questions such non-legislated initiatives' ability to be effective. In contrast, the report points to provinces that have taken more concrete steps to end racism. Ontario passed its Anti-Racism Act in 2017, that legislation mandates the collection of race-based data in order to track progress in the justice system, 
in education and also in child welfare. Meanwhile, for its part, last year, Nova Scotia passed the Dismantling Racism and Hate Act, committing the government to developing a provincial strategy and a health equity framework by July 2023. That includes creating data standards to monitor and address systemic hate, inequity, and racism. Unlike Newfoundland and Labrador's Committee of Four Ministers, Nova Scotia's legislation was developed by an all-party committee in consultation with community members. The province's minister responsible for the Office of Equity and Anti-Racism Initiatives will then be required to submit an annual progress report on those activities. In BC, also last year, the province introduced the Anti-Racism Data Act, co-developed with Indigenous peoples. That legislation includes the creation of a provincial anti-racism data committee to collaborate with government on how data is collected and used. The report notes these legislated mechanisms increase transparency and accountability. BC is now required to release data on an annual basis and to periodically review the Act. People for Education says collecting identity-based data is an integral component of advancing anti-racism because it provides a profile of the population in question, it yields valuable insights about how different groups experience the same institutions, systems, and processes, and it compares the outcomes of different groups that can be sorted by demographic variables such as race. Paul. Your take on the argument that anti-racist legislation creates more accountability and is therefore more effective, and also that identity-based data should be collected to establish a baseline and then to monitor progress. Yes, I mean, I, I am really glad that you know other provinces have taken in, you know this board initiative because I mean, Justin, this is not the first time. In fact, from the early eighties in anti-racism movement. The, the call for race-based data has always been something that has been the pillar of conversation. There has always been resistance. And, and part of it is because it was a strategy of avoiding responsibility. And that is the point where I think uh, those who are expressing concern about, you know, without the data to back what we are saying or what we call the audit report, uh, it sort of become a superficial engagement because we are a society that understand numbers. And oftentimes in the past, when you raise questions about discrimination in our society, what you are asked is, who are those being affected? What are the numbers? And we will not have the numbers because we refuse to take race-based, you know, data. And, and uh, it's always, I find it very interesting in terms of, what is it about race that oftentimes when it come up, we back paddling because we take all sort of, you know, uh, data, you know, identity data. We, we, we ask questions around gender. We ask sometimes even questions around people's employment. But when it comes to race, we don't want to. And the reason that, you know, race-based data is very important is that it is one for us to understand who are missing in our employment situation, in our housing situation, in our institutional arrangement who are missing. So when we look at our job place, we need to know who are the bodies that are there and what are their positions. I mean, let's look at the provincial government as a start. Who are the members of our legislators? 
What is their race background? See, let's look at the senior leadership positions. Who are they? Where are they coming from? And we need to begin to ask the question, who are those absent? And it is this race-based data that will really help us to understand that how come in a society that we claim we are pluralistic, we keep talking about Newfoundland B, you know, is gradually becoming a diverse society. We are talking about building an inclusive society. And yes, at the senior level, within this very province where we are making policies and taking serious decisions that will determine how the future of this province is being run, a lot of people are missing. Now, we can give an all sort of excuse that, well, uh, and other immigrants are just recently joining us. Well, I, I am willing to hold my peace. But what about indigenous people who have been here right from the beginning? Not even beginning. They were here before members of Europeans. How come they are not also included? So taking this data help us to understand why absences itself is speaking volume. When bodies are not there, it tells us a full story about our commitment to building an inclusive society. But it is also help us to challenge ourselves to see who are the bodies that we are leaving out in this Newfoundland that could be society that we are imagining that we are building. And what do we need to do to ensure that other voices are included? It becomes an easy way to hold institutions and to hold ourselves accountable about what we are doing well and what we are not doing well. And so the race-based data is so key in, the, in our fight against anti-racism work. Because absences of bodies itself is an indication that something is fundamentally wrong with what we have. As part of our own effort to create accountability and hold power to account, in Barry Ground's episodes, we'll place something in our virtual time capsule. It may be a promise or a commitment from politicians or an interview request that we've put to someone. And the time capsule could be opened at any point in time in the future when it seems relevant or pertinent to an issue of the day. I'd like to put something into the time capsule today, and then I'll invite you to do so as well, Paul. So, you know, because our province's Ministerial Committee on Anti-Racism has committed to eradicating racism, and since it has yet to announce how it will do that, I would like to put our interview request to Minister Jerry Byrne in the time capsule and invite him or any of the other ministers on the committee to come on the show and talk to us about the anti-racism strategy once a further announcement is made. Paul, is there anything that you'd like to put in the virtual time capsule that we could pull out down the road or, or to gauge measure, uh, gauge or measure progress on this? Yes, uh, I mean, with my background as social work, I think I am also interested to know the kind of changes that is happening within CSSD that is addressing issues around racism, you know, in particular, and also indigenization. And, and I want to see to what extent are we building a child welfare policy that is inclusive? And to what extent, what are the efforts that we are putting in place to ensure that indigenous children and racialized children remain homes and are not taken from their families? Consider your questions in the Berry Grounds time capsule. Paul, it's been an incredible honor and I've learned a lot from you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. 
That's it for this episode of Berry Grounds. If you like what we do and are listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Amazon, please consider giving us a five-star review. That'll help us reach more people. And you can also click the pink Support Us button on the independent.ca's website and donate directly to our show. We hope to keep this going because there are a ton of issues we want to cover. We're putting the biggest stories under a microscope with an eye to power and to change. Subscribe to Berry Grounds wherever you get your podcasts. And for past episodes, check out theindependent.ca slash berrygrounds or harbingermedianetwork.com. You can find me on Twitter at Barry Grounds, and you can follow the Independence Facebook page for Barry Grounds updates and lots of other great journalism from Newfoundland and Labrador. I'm Justin Brake. Thanks for listening. <laughs>